Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And that email address link is below in the description section here, so you can refer to that. It is askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you have any questions for me, and I love your questions, please send them to me that way. If you put them in the comments section, I probably won't see them or note them down. And of course, for my Patreon subscribers, you guys can of course send me uh, Patreon messages on the Patreon platform with questions, and of course I'll get them at the top of the queue because my Patreon supporters definitely get preferential treatment when it comes to answering questions. All right, so I put up a podcast yesterday uh, with um, Alexis Erlin, who was a survivor of the Pentecostal movement, and I thought we had a great chat and seems to be getting some pretty good feedback. I hope you guys will check that out. It was an interesting conversation, and Alexis is an amazing and wonderful woman. So uh, that is there for your viewing pleasure. And um, let's see, any other points I need to make before we get started? I'll probably be doing a live stream this Tuesday. Haven't totally nailed that down yet, but I will probably do uh, something. There seems to be some interest in... um, Scientology's PPP loans, for example, stuff like that. And Tony Ortega's been reporting on that stuff, but maybe I'll talk about that. Anyway, now let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Kevin Zay, what would happen if a Scientology celebrity all of a sudden decided they wanted to join the Sea Org? Well, I can tell you, Kevin, that there has been a Scientology celebrity named Peter Schles, who many, many years ago uh, in the 90s decided... He wanted to join the Sea Org or somehow got recruited, he and his wife, Karen, who has since left and has written a book about her experiences. Uh, Karen Presley's book is is pretty good, pretty amazing. And Peter's still in, and he was a musician and songwriter. He wrote On the Wings of Love, which uh, was, I think, Peebo Bryson, uh, I think that was a top hit, and I think he wrote other songs or somehow contributed and produced other music, and then he joined the Sea Org. And he did the uh, the Estates Project Force in PAC and, at Big Blue, where I was. And then he moved on up the line, and I think he's been the musical director up at Gold for many, many years. Um, now, there are another story I have for you is that the Sea Org uh, tried to recruit Jenna Elfman back in the day when she was still a young, uh, uh, still getting into the industry. I think she had done some commercials and stuff, and she was dead set on becoming a actress and I think getting a show or getting in the movies and they really went in on her to try to recruit her and she not having yet become famous they were like hey you know you should join the Sea Org you can be famous here you can go work as an actress up at gold and do that kind of work there and be in our promotional materials or our movies and things like that and she was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to actually make this happen. And and she did. Um, now, she's, you know, pretty C-list at this point. But um, there was a period of time where Jenna Elfman was, was definitely more famous than she is now. And probably if they went in on her again now, <laughs> or if she and her husband Bodie Elfman wanted to join the Sea Org now, they'd probably get, you know, an, a, an e-ticket right in there. You know, they'd probably go, go straight for it. So, um 
so I guess it depends a little bit on, you know, who the celebrity is and what good Scientology might see from them as to whether it would be better for them to be in the Sea Org or be better outside the Sea Org. And this was something we actually used to talk about in the Sea Org was, you know, should celebrities join? And some people were like, oh, absolutely. They can do hella more good in the Sea Org uh, no matter what they're doing than they could as a celebrity. And other people have the view that, yeah, no, of course not. They can disseminate and propagate and, you know, promote Scientology way better as famous celebrities than they could within the Sea Org as, say, somebody working in the galley or somebody even, you know, on the phones doing call-in or an auditor or course supervisor or whatever. Um, so that so people had differing ideas about this. There was never really any particular set policy on the issue that I saw, except I, I could be wrong about this. There might have been policy that said don't recruit celebrities, but um, I didn't see that in writing that I remember. Um, and like I said, Peter Schles was very clearly and definitely a celebrity, and he joined. But I think the people who get into the movies or get on public, you know, on, on, on the airwaves in some significant fashion are probably left alone. Um, but if they wanted to join the Sea Org, you know, I don't know. If Tom Cruise wanted to join the Sea Org, I'm pretty sure David Miscavige would try to talk him out of it. But I can't really see David Miscavige, you know, Cruise wanting to join the Sea Org either. Same with Travolta. Um, I don't know. If one day, you know, Michael Pena woke up and was like, you know what? I need to take full responsibility. I'm going to join the Sea Org. Uh, you know, they might let him. Um you know, stranger things have happened. So it, I guess it would depend on the individual and uh, and the church's view as to how much good the person could do in or out of the church. So there you go. PZ, I've seen a number of recordings online, some secretly done, of various Scientology get-togethers where Miscavige does his thing on an elaborately themed stage area. His phraseology is cleverly put together to obfuscate with twists and turns to the effect that he speaks an awful lot but actually says very little. That is a very clever skill. I wonder who is the real brains behind it and the author of his speeches. However, my question is about the audience. How come they fall for the same stuff every year? If you thought last year was brilliant, well, next year we go global. He said that last time. It's the same message as last year. Yeah, it can be a little annoying watching that sort of thing. But keep in mind also that Scientology, there's just a rotating door here of, of, of Scientology membership as well. Not that they're getting lots and lots of new members in, which is why they're kind of shrinking, but they are constantly recovering people from the past and getting them back in as new people are leaving in larger numbers. So the effectiveness of Miscavige's speech talking and rapid fire delivery and, you know, charts that have no numbers connected with them, but they all go up, 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 you know, and that kind of thing actually is being seen through by a number of Scientologists who also for many, many years, I mean, back to the 90s, Scientologists were really getting fed up with having to go to all these events all the time. And that's what they're called as events or these get togethers you refer to. 
And these are um, probably seven, eight times a year uh, Miscavige puts these on. And they are very expensive, very, you know, grand, golden, gilded events. And the, the stages are always over the top and, and very, you know, co fluted columns and, and Dordic columns and stuff and gold, you know, and, and just all this goofy stuff all over the stage. I used to make these things as, you know, on the RPF. We'd we'd uh, we'd have to drag these big styrofoam columns out of storage and re patch them up and repaint them for the current set design, and we re we would reuse these things over and over again. They actually have a a storage space under the Shrine Auditorium for Scientology's stage setups, and uh, and we'd have to paint the floorboards and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, very very gaudy, you know, gilded uh, affairs. Uh, and that's all according to what Miscavige personally wants. He's, he, you know, has a final design approval on all this stuff, as well as you ask, well, who's writing his scripts? Well, this is a man named Dan Sherman. He's an OT Scientologist who was hired to be L. Ron Hubbard's biographer in the early 90s. No biography has yet been put forward. Apparently, Mike Rinder has said years ago that it was written. It's a done deal as far as a manuscript, but, you know, there is so much true information on the Internet about L. Ron Hubbard that the target that was set pre-Internet, before the Internet ever existed, we were all told that in order for OT 9 and 10 to be released, we had to have a safe environment for Scientology, and that meant a recognition and acceptance of L. Ron Hubbard as a person. So the biography was going to be written in order to put out the truth about L. Ron Hubbard and his life. And then the Internet happened. And, you know, it wasn't just a matter of the truth was in, you know, files that were, you know, in the military records or in the FBI. But now suddenly it was everywhere and it was only a keyboard click away. So the idea that they were going to safe point, quote unquote, L. Ron Hubbard, in other words, establish L. Ron Hubbard as a reputable, you know, scientific uh, philosopher and, and uh, philanthropist and discoverer and all of that researcher, all of that, all that planning went by the wayside immediately. And so there has been no biography published by the Church of Scientology. Instead, you have a bunch of what are called Ron Mags. And um, these are just, you know, biographical bits and pieces put together by Dan Sherman about L. Ron Hubbard's life. Well, that's left Dan Sherman with the unenviable task excuse me, of also doing a lot of David Miscavige's speech writing. And uh, the speech writing used to be done by different people. And I think Sherman's pretty much the, the sole heir to that thankless task now. And so the run-on sentences and long-winded explanations and, and, you know, grand exposition about things that Miscavige will go into in his very wordy way comes from Dan Sherman. And then Miscavige makes his own changes and alterations to it because he likes to punch them up and, you know, really make his speeches impinge and that kind of thing. So that's, uh, as I understand it, that's how the speech writing gets done now. There could be other contributors I don't know about. You know, over the years, there might have been other people piling in on this. But as far as I know, and certainly the style of wording comes right out of Dan Sherman's style. Uh, that's how he writes. 
And that's how he speaks. And when you watch him give uh, speeches, it's actually even more pedantic than Miscavige's stuff. Um, anyway, and as far as the audience goes, you know, like I said, you'll get a lot of people who just get really, really sick and tired of this. They can't follow it. It's hard to sit there for two and a half or three hours and listen to this just massive inflow of rapid fire machine gunning of supposed facts and figures and, and information. And, and that's the point is that they, you know, Miscavige is doing that by design. Information overload and sensory overload are parts of creating trance induction. And that's where you can, you know, depending on the person and their relative degree of suggestibility, and different people have different levels of this, probably over different times as well, um, you have um, a, a way of inducing trance. And by inducing trance and suggestibility, you know, in suggestible people, you have them uh, lowering critical thinking and inputting information uncritically, right? They're not thinking about it. And they're already in a Scientology headspace where they're receptive to pro-Scientology information and not receptive to anything anti-Scientology. In other words, they want good news. They want to hear that Scientology is expanding. And when Miscavige provides them with that information, their confirmation bias goes to work and the and the cognitive dissonance quiets down of anything they might have heard that Scientology is not expanding because look at all this proof and all this wonderful evidence that we are. You see what I mean? So that's that's the real purpose of those events and as well as to become, you know, to act as fundraising activities. So that's what I can say about that. And I hope it's uh, I hope that was interesting and useful. Leo Taxel. Can you elaborate on some Scientology conspiracy theories? Internal ones like the IRS takeover and external such as Hubbard's bankers. Okay, well, I'll comment on these two and then and let's see where that goes. Um, in terms of the IRS conspiracy theory, this is, a, like you mentioned, a, sort of an a internal one. Um, I guess by that, yeah, I'm not really sure exactly what you mean by internal, but how I interpret that is the IRS takeover is a um, is an outside of Scientology conspiracy theory. Within the world of Scientology, there's no conspiracy theory connected with their tax exemption. The IRS finally reviewed the matter and did the right thing. That's what Scientologists think about it. But outside the church, there's this idea that the IRS commissioner was blackmailed by Miscavige and Marty Rathbun, who went into his office and had some long talk with him. And I, I forget the guy's name, Jeffrey something, I think. But anyway, they, they went in, had this meeting. And I have said in my book and on video that I don't believe that they tried to blackmail him uh, in terms of a personal level of blackmail. I don't think they dug up some dirt on the IRS commissioner and then, and then you know, threatened to release it if he wouldn't give them tax exemption. I think it was a bit more easy and obvious than that, where they brought thousands of lawsuits against individual IRS uh, agents. They had a years-long PR campaign going against the IRS. Um, Miscavige literally made a video um, endorsing CATS, the Citizens for an Alternative Tax System, which was a uh, an idea being put forward originally not by Scientologists, but the church glommed onto this while they were doing their anti-IRS campaign in the late 1980s. And they were pushing for a value-added tax system to take over or replace the income tax system of the United States. 
not really a very viable or realistic idea, but at the time when the IRS was getting trounced in the media, there were Senate investigations because of this. Scientology's Freedom Magazine was posting monthly articles about abusive IRS agents beating up on people and abusing them over their taxes, which were all true enough. And they were really lambasting the IRS in the public eye. And the IRS knew where this was coming from, and they knew that they were in a full-on war, and they were doing their part to try to, um, you know, maintain that Scientology did not deserve tax exemption, but this battle started really wearing down their resources. So, anyway, I think that's all I need to say on that for this answer here. Like I said, I've laid it all out in detail in my book, so you can check that out. But uh, there's really no, you know, there was no necessary, it wasn't necessary that they blackmail the IRS commissioner with personal dirt. They had this whole, you know, offensive that they were doing. And it went, when I said it went on for years because Scientology knew that uh, if they didn't get that tax exemption, it was game over for them. And uh, that was why they fought with every resource they had. So then as far as commenting on the external conspiracy theories, all right, now I've made videos about this. I've gone into, into real detail about how the conspiracy theories within Scientology work, but I thought for this time, since we're taking it up in a Q&A show, I would actually just read to you from the scriptures like I did uh, last week with some of the LGBT stuff. I thought, let me know, let me just give it to you straight from L. Ron Hubbard. And you can get where this conspiracy mindset comes from, because it comes from the very top. And here is what L. Ron Hubbard said in a lecture he gave, or a briefing really, called RJ67, or Ron's Journal 67. And if I remember right, this was uh, first published in 20 September 1967. And I've highlighted an applicable portion here. Hubbard goes on... In this lecture is where he first publicly announces the sea organization as an, as an entity. He says, hey, we, I've been out on these boats. I've got these OTs with me. We are doing the sea project or sea organization. And I thought I'd tell everybody in the world here what's up. And this is the first time that a lot of people had heard from Hubbard in, you know, in over a year. Most of 1967 and the later part of 66, Hubbard had turned stuff over, gone off on these boats with a select group of people, and nobody heard from him or even knew where he was. So this briefing was the first sort of, uh, hey, I'm here, and here's what's going on. And then he drops this bomb about how the Scientology had been being fought by governments for years, and... Um, and he talks about in 1966, he had gone to um, South Africa, and he went down there to see if they might find an alternate safe place for Scientology down in Africa, since he'd already fled from the United States and now was getting, you know, the boot from the UK. Uh, there was a ban on Scientologists going into the country, and there was all kinds of government trouble. So he goes down to South Africa. Well, he's only down there for a little bit before he gets his, his uh, visa revoked and he's getting in trouble with the local authorities and, and, um, and they didn't want him down there and he got kicked out. So here's what he says. Quote, 
With all of this action being taken against us in the last 17 years, I found after the South African matter that it was vitally necessary that I isolate who it was on this planet who was attacking us. The attacks were always of the same pattern. They always followed the same newspaper routes. They always used the same type of parliamentary member. And I thought that I had better look into this very thoroughly. The organization under the direction of Mary Sue employed, and actually had employed earlier than I had returned from Southern Africa, employed several professional intelligence agents who had long and successful professional backgrounds, and they looked into this matter for us, and the results of their activities, although still in progress, have told us all that we needed to know with regard to any enemy we had on this planet. Our enemies on this planet are less than 12 men. They are members of the Bank of England and other higher financial circles. They own and control newspaper chains, and they are, oddly enough, directors in all the mental health groups in the world which have sprung up. Now, these chaps are very interesting fellows. They have fantastically corrupt backgrounds, illegitimate children, government graft, a very unsavory lot. And they apparently sometime in the rather distant past had determined on a course of action. Being in control of most of the gold supplies of the planet, they entered upon a program of bringing every government to bankruptcy and under their thumb so that no government would be able to act politically without their permission. The rest of their apparent program was to use mental health which is to say psychiatric electric shock and prefrontal lobotomy, to remove from their path any political dissenters. They were the people behind the Siberia Bill, which almost passed the House of Representatives in the United States and did pass, if I remember rightly, the Senate, which gave the power to any governor in of any state in the United States simply to pick up anyone on the street and send him to Alaska. We defeated this Siberia bill and many other mental health quote-unquote acts of this character, but never really before knew from whom they were coming. Anyway, these fellows have gotten nearly every government in the world to owe them considerable quantities of money through various chicaneries, and they control, of course, income tax, government finance, Wilson, for instance, the current premier of England, is totally involved with these fellows and talks about nothing else, actually. They organize these mental health groups which sprang up simultaneously all over the world, and anything that has mental health in it, in its name, or mental hygiene, or other things of that character, such names as that are all part of the organization, which stems from these less than a dozen really men. Now, this is very interesting because we innocently moved forward in 1950 and came straight across this very, very broad plot. If there was a cure to mental illness, then people would say you had better send him to an auditor and would begin to ask questions if someone was electric shocked or given a prefrontal lobotomy, for as only by electric shock and prefrontal lobotomies could they effectively remove their political enemies or objectors. 
And he says a little bit more about how crazy these guys are. And he says here, um, I'll leave with this last paragraph. They have failed in nearly every part of their mission except this one of making every government bankrupt and owe them fantastic sums. Now, these chaps control newspaper chains through one of their number. Sir, I don't know if it's Sir, but it's Cecil King. And these newspaper chains go down into Southern Africa, they go into Australia, they go into, of course, all parts of the world, and this newspaper chain was what was being used to give us a bad name. It was very interesting that the only effort they only ever made was simply to discredit us. That is what they could be counted upon to do, simply discredit us and discredit the workability. There is no faintest doubt in their minds that our technology does work because many other such activities as Sabud and so forth have gone on unmolested by them. It is the only intensely workable technology of Scientology which has attracted their ire. Okay, end quote. So you pretty much see the bones, the framework of the conspiracy laid out for you there. It is the bankers, it is psychiatry, it is they who control and own governments by bankrupting them and loaning them money, I suppose. So this, of course, brings in the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the uh, this quickly connects dots to the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds um, and to the um, various organizations that, you know, the Bilderbergers and, the, and you know, these, these uh, sort of trilateral commission, you know, these famous early 1970 groups that everybody was, you know, none dare call it conspiracy. Well, Hubbard did dare to call it conspiracy before that book was even published. And he fed this line to Scientologists that this Siberia bill, for example, if you were wondering what that was about, it was Hubbard's misinterpretation and uh, his hysteria, really, about a bill that meant to um, create some mental health uh, facilities up in Alaska. And instead, they interpreted this to mean, as you read there, as I read to you, any governor of any state could simply grab anybody off the street and send them to this in, up, up to Alaska, when they'll never be heard from again, you know, and this kind of nonsense. Hubbard loved this crap. And uh, in fact... I talked about the Ron magazines in um, the last question. Well, here is one of them. This is a hardback version of Ron, the Freedom Fighter, <laughs> articles and essays. And this is this is a pretty thick manuscript here, and it is chock-a-block full of articles that Hubbard wrote, most of them in the late 1960s. Um, which created the Freedom Freedom Magazine, which was an arm uh, a publication of Scientology of the Office of Special Affairs, and um, he forwards a lot more of this conspiratorial type thinking in his articles that he wrote and essays he wrote for Freedom Magazine in this book. So if you're really really curious about it, then you know get a copy of this thing and read it, and you'll get exactly how far down the rabbit hole Hubbard's thinking goes. And he brings all the Scientologists along with him who have any interest in this stuff, and quite a few of them do. Not everybody, by a long shot. There are many, many Scientologists who don't care at all about this stuff. But all Scientologists pretty much are going to hear RJ67 at least at one point. And many of the essays and articles in the Freedom Magazine uh, or in the uh, Freedom Fighter 
Ron magazine are things that, you know, our Scientologists are encouraged to read. So it's easy to, you know, get exposure to this information as a Scientologist and start going down the conspiracy mind trap, you know, the the, the little mind virus that is the that is conspiracy theories. You know, they take it's not that all the things that Hubbard talks about are all false. That's the thing about conspiracy theories that are so insidious is some of the facts that are brought up are true facts. Some of the conclusions are true conclusions, but often many of the facts, while, while they might be true, don't logically lead to the conclusions that the conspiracy theorists are making. And that's where you see all the logical fallacies and pitfalls of, of going down the Alex Jones, David Icke rabbit holes. Is It's not like everything they say is wrong and false. It's that their conclusions are usually you know, kind of crazy because they connect dots that don't connect and things like that. Hubbard was the original conspiracy theorist on this stuff. I mean, he predates Jones, Ike, none dare call it conspiracy, you know, a lot of the stuff. He's he's obviously not the first conspiracy theorist, but as far as the world of Scientology goes, he was definitely a trendsetter on that. So that's where the Scientology mindset is. That's why. And I hope that answered that question a bit. Yusuf, what's your take on the alt-right movement? Would you say it's mutating into cultist-like behavior? On that note, what's your take on Stefan Molyneux? All right. Well, the alt-right movement, so to speak, is a label that's been given to a lot of different fringe groups that exist on the right end of the political spectrum. And um, so what's my take on it? Well, I think that, you know, in any... Whenever you have a, you know, a group of people, society, whatever, you're going to have people who have different mindsets about the ideologies or beliefs or, or social values, political values, what should be done, how, how should society be run. And you're going to have people who want really no part of it. They don't, they don't want to really take part in this. Or they have their very extreme ideas about how things should be. And they don't generally get a whole lot of mass agreement. These are the people who end up out on the fringes. There's always going to be fringe movements and fringe groups. In the case of the alt-right, you have, for example, neo-Nazis or white supremacists. And they there are many, many, many of these groups. I mean, we've done podcasts about how you know, there are even KKK, you know, if you listen to Daryl Davis, you'll find out that the KKK is not even one big monolithic unified, you know, group of people. There are KKK who have one set of ideas and KKK who have another set of ideas, all of them obviously racist and awful. Um, but, you know, it's not one thing. And same with the neo-Nazis and same with, you know, some of the other extreme groups out there on the uh, far end of the political right. You also get evangelicals mixing up into this stuff. Uh, you get anti-Semitism into this stuff. You get um, flat earthers into this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of, of pretty wild, you know, wild groups. Um, so, you know, are, is there cult-like behavior? Yeah, absolutely there is. Because cult-like behavior is another term we use to describe extremist behavior, very 
us versus them, very black and white thinking. That is what extremism is, is it's an inability to critically think about that topic on which you are an extremist and an insistence that that topic is the single most important thing in the world, that everybody needs to get on board with it. And if everybody did, the world would, of course, be a better and wonderful and happier place. Which, of course, is just not true because the, you know, variety is truly the spice of life and, and we're never all going to be on the same page about anything. But the extreme view of something is that idea that we need to all embrace extremism, this black and white thinking. So, you know, it, it, that's always going to exist. There's always a lunatic fringe in any group, even if it's just one guy to start with. It's, it, it's always there in one form or another. Um, and yes, and I'd say, you know, I wouldn't say it's mutating into cult-like behavior. I'd say that is, you know, the expression of cult-like behavior on that spectrum. Um, as far as my take on Stefan Molyneux, I think he's a sophist. I think the guy is smart. I think he has um, clever things to say that are not necessarily true things. And I think that he's got some some pretty serious issues uh, with between him and his wife and whatnot. And I... I just don't really, I, I can't really get on board with a lot of the things the guy says or how he says them. And I know that he is trying desperately to stay relevant and he's losing his audience and it's and things are not going well for him right now. And that's okay with me because um, I, I never really got exactly what that guy was trying to do. But making the world a better place is, it, it's difficult for me to see that that's what he's really, really trying to do or be about when he um, forwards some of the ideas that he does. Um, he's, he's forwarded some pretty anti-Semitic stuff, some very, very misogynistic stuff. And, um, you know, I just, I, I don't really respect the guy because of that. And his sophistry makes it appear that he is more informed and, um, and saying better things than what he's really saying. You got to really dig into his arguments a bit and tear them apart. And he doesn't make that easy to do. And like his ability to um, say something and then not fully commit. He does this on Twitter all the time. He'll say something, but it's not a really a full commitment. So you call him on what he just said, and he goes, oh, no, I didn't say that, even though it's pretty obvious that's exactly what he said you know this kind of nonsense and doublespeak doesn't doesn't do well for him in forwarding his case it'd be a lot easier and simpler if he would just say what he meant and stand by it without having to engage in a lot of what appear to be bad faith arguments whether they are bad faith arguments or not i can't say for sure i can't mind read the guy but um that's where i see stefan molyneux Mark P. The references to David Miscavige changing and editing parts of Scientology brought to mind something I read in a blog about LRH tapes being edited to take out names on non-politically correct statements. Is this true? I remember more than a few references to Mary Sue, usually as Susie, as well as a reference to Quentin in one of the study tapes. Nibs was named in a lot of the tapes from the 50s. Yes, editing of the tapes very definitely happened. In fact, I did a whole uh, talk with Mark Headley about this uh, years ago, and we laughed about how edited Hubbard's lectures actually were. And taking out stuff that's now socially unacceptable is absolutely the order of the day. They've done tons and tons of it. 
There are there are places where Hubbard refers to um, black people, Chinese people, in racist ways. All of that got taken away, taken out. Um, Hubbard's um, well, probably some may, may I I don't know for sure. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there were homophobic statements he might have made that have been or uh, removed. Um, and then the politically incorrect stuff, you know, references to suppressives, people who were declared suppressive after the time of the lecture. Hubbard often talked about a guy named Reg or Reg Sharp. He was a friend of Hubbard's and an associate, somebody who worked for many, many years with Hubbard on um, sort of in his inner circle. He ended up getting declared. I'm pretty surprised uh, if they hadn't removed all references to him. Hubbard talked about him all the time. So, yeah, that that definitely happens. And it's... Um, you know, the only way to really find out is to get copies of the old distributed reel-to-reel lectures, which most of them have fallen apart by now. It's really hard to find these things. And those are the original, you know, copies of the original recordings Hubbard gave before they, before Golden Era Productions even existed. By about the 1970s, I think, is when they started doing a tape unit where they were compiling copying and distributing the lectures and i think that's where they probably started editing them but definitely by the 1980s at, at golden era productions they had a full tape set up and they were editing them flat out so that's i know for sure that's when it would have really they really really gone to town barney would it be fair to say that the church of scientology was more spiritually focused under lrh or is this just naive nostalgia no, I think it would be fair to say that that's true. And the reason for it is because Scientology has always been influenced very heavily by the culture and society that it is in. Because it's trying to put out a message that will appeal to people. In the early 1950s, it was about science with Dianetics and then about the Thetan and sort of getting into that mode with Scientology. And there was exteriorization and there was talk about, you know, popping people out of their body and this was really wild and, hey, we know it's wild, but this is where the research went, so what are we going to do? Well, by the 1960s, with flower power and free love and society blossoming and all kinds of spiritual movements taking root, uh, especially in the Western world, Scientology jumped right onto that, you know, magic carpet ride and promoted themselves as a very highly spiritual, Buddhist-inspired and motivated you know, Hindu-inspired kind of religion, and it was all about the spirit and, you know, and realizing your true potential and all of that, which carried through in the 70s. And uh, people were really into that stuff. And so there was, you know, there were very active efforts made to align Scientology's messaging with that. In the 1980s, things got a bit more, you know, economically focused and, you know, it was all still about me, 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 but it was more about, you know, power suits and, and yuppies and, and climbing corporate ladders of, uh, and economic ladders. And so Scientology became more marketed as a tool set of practical tools that you could use to improve your life. So then it became less spiritual and more practically oriented, even though Hubbard had always defined it as an applied religious philosophy, um, you know, a very practical set of, of things, of, of methods and, and uh, methodologies that you would use to improve your life. So while the core of Scientology was always pretty much the same 
how it was promoted and talked about is what changed over the decades, and that's kind of the point I'm making. So, yes, in that sense, it was more spiritual under Hubbard than it has been under Miscavige. If, you know, we were to see some great spiritual revival here in the United States, because things have been kind of moving away from that with the rise of the Internet and science and facts and reason and, and mass exposure to information from all over the world, more and more people are turning away from religious-based answers because they just aren't making a whole lot of sense for a lot of people anymore. Um, still, the majority of people still go in that direction, but it's, you know, it's a, it is a changing demographic. And Scientology is trying to roll with that, which is why you see them talk about spiritual technology and their Super Bowl ads still align with a spiritual message to one degree or another, but it's more about the technology. And they're trying to show that they're more science-based when, you know, obviously it's all just a bunch of pseudoscientific crap. But that's the approach. So that's uh, what you see there. Okay, so we got a show. So there you go, guys. Uh, some answers to your questions for this week. I hope you found them entertaining, informative, and educational. And I hope that um, as a result of following my channel here, you guys are, are enjoying your time and with my videos. Um, and if you're really liking it and, and thinking that I should be supported here, well, please go ahead and support me through Patreon link below. You can also buy merch. I've got a link below to a Spreadshirt store where I've got, I've put together various things that you can uh, throw on t-shirts, hats, mugs, towels, etc. So check that out. And of course, um, I've got recommended books you can check out on my Amazon storefront, also linked below. Every single one of my videos has these links. And if you only want to go uh, for supporting me through a one-off, which is awesome and wonderful, then of course there is a link to PayPal below. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.